Hey, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of The Veterinary Optimist. I'm your host, Jennifer Evans. And part of my journey for this podcast, like you all know, is just to really dig into some really inspiring stories. And I I hope that you all are looking forward to this conversation as much as I am, because today I'm with Dr. Heather Linzer. Dr. Heather Linzer is the Chief Veterinary Officer at Suveto. She has served as the youngest woman on the American Animal Hospital Association Board. She has spent time as AHA's chief medical officer. She has been on shows such as The Today Show, Fox News, Dr. Oz, Kelly and Ryan, the Martha Stewart Radio. She is also the recipient of Excellence in Journalism and Outstanding Contributions to the Pet Industry Award. My goodness, that's a that's so much, Dr. Lenzer. So I would like to say welcome, Dr. Heather Lenzer. Thank you for having me. And, oh my gosh. Uh, and if I had heard that bio um, read to me, um, I would have actually been very disappointed if you had been reading this to me as a younger version of myself, because I was 100% positive that if you had read my bio when I was 20 years out, which is what I am, I'm 20 years after graduation, I would have been a zoo veterinarian. And you would have been reading all of the wonderful con contributions I made to the zoo field. And so what I really had to learn and kind of what I wanted to talk about, if that's okay today, is how I shifted over from being super perfectionistic and having everything planned out to a T, which is exactly what was gonna what was gonna be needed if I was gonna be a zoo vet, to not being one and being completely at peace with that. Would that yeah. be okay? No, I think that's actually a really a great conversation for us to have because Doc, in my opinion, so many veterinarians really have that perfectionist mindset. And so I'm going to be super interested to hear what that journey looked like for you and how that all changed. So yeah, please jump right in. Well, because I, I mean, I grew up like so many of us, I wanted to be a vet since I was little. Um, and because I think a lot of us believe that veterinary medicine is a calling as opposed to a job. And so I definitely fell into that. And, uh, and I really liked the idea of working with um, exotic animals and helping repopulate the planet. So I had planned out and figured out how to get there. And I knew I needed to do um, research. And so I went to school at Iowa State and the, the um, amount of research I was gonna have in exotic animals was not very much, but there was a ton of livestock. And so I ended up doing, I got published in, uh, in uh, several journals, including the Applied Animal Behavior Science Journal uh, on actually swine behavior. Uh, I met a bunch of zoo veterinarians and got my preceptorships lined up freshman year in vet school. I had them lined up for senior year and I had already gone to AAZV, which are, were the conferences for zoo veterinarians. I'd gone to Africa twice. I learned how livestock and wildlife interface with each other and kind of the conflict that could grow there. And, uh, and then I went to South Africa and, and learned even more. Finally, I, I actually was accepted into an internship in uh, zoo animal medicine and was going to go do that uh, after I graduated from vet school. So I have, was positive that I had everything lined up. And then I did my, so senior year, I did my zoo, I had multiple zoo vet preceptorships and I lived basically, and that's one of the cool things about zoo, vet, zoo preceptorships is you live in the zoo. And so I really like in the zoo, like I had an apartment 
in the zoo. I, I could rollerblade around after the zoo closed and watch all the animals and listen to them because they all came alive then. And I really got to know get to, got to know the zoo veterinarians really well. So we had a um, a task in front of us. We had a, a female elephant that had a retained fetus, and and she had it had been retained for a long time. And so there was a lot of discussion about how were we going to work on this, getting this calf out of this, this big elephant. And we, so I thought we were going to be able to do elephant anesthesia. And I couldn't imagine how exciting it was going to be to be involved in elephant anesthesia. And I knew I was going to be away, like I, I wouldn't be able to do anything, right, as a, as a vet student. But I was super excited to be able to be involved. But I looked at the, at the zoo vet as we were walking back after we had examined the, the elephant. And he really looked kind of blank. And, and he was, we had walkie talkies and normally he was really chatty on the walkie talkies. And um, as we were walking back up, he seemed kind of quiet and robotic as he was talking on the walkie talkies. We got up to the administration building and he put his hand on the door and beside the door was his car. And he looked at the car and he looked at me and he says, that's a Chevette. I'm like, okay. And he's like, for all the meetings I go through, through all the stress that I'm experiencing, all I can afford is a Chevette. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, and just so you know, for everything that we do for that elephant and everything we do, even if that baby had survived, both of them would have remained in captivity for the duration of their life. And I'm like, whoa, that's a lot. Not kind of what I, I thought we were going to go plan how we were going to do this element anesthesia. And he said, so then we talked to, we talked a little bit later and, and, and he, he kind of got his wits about him a little bit more and started to advocate for what the um, anesthesia protocol would look like. And there was a lot of pushback from the keepers. They didn't want to do this. And he was eventually outvoted. And this was not, we weren't going to anesthetize him. And so what he, I saw this happen several other times in several other zoos where, where the zoo vets had poured a lot of, of their passion into their cases. And there were multiple hurdles to get, to get through in order to have those cases actually be managed the way the vet wanted. Plus you had public perception on top. And those animals may not even get to go back into the wild. And so that was, if I hadn't kind of paid attention to what he was saying, really saying, which was basically understand what you're getting into, I probably would have charged ahead and kept doing zoo animal medicine. And it's not that it's not a wonderful field, it is. I just didn't understand the, um, the impact or I didn't understand how much impact I was gonna have. And I, I really ended up deciding to pull back and saying, I don't know if that's how I want to serve the profession. So it was a huge issue because I had planned this out. And if I hadn't spent the time really connecting with them, I would have charged forward. And I do think I would have been pretty disappointed. And so one of my favorite authors, Liz Gilbert says, you're afraid, you are afraid of surrender because you don't want to lose control. But honey, you never had control. All you had was anxiety. And I'm like, wow, that's what I was doing. I was really pushing ahead to try to plan my whole life out. 
And so I don't know if you if you agree with this this um, definition of perfectionism, but this is Brene Brown's, and I love it. Is that perfectionism is self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels the primary thought that if I look perfect, I live perfectly, and I do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize painful feelings or shame, judgment, and blame. What do you think of that definition? Uh, so I sit firmly on the belief that. Uh, Brene Brown is definitely one of those people that I use as my guiding light, right? Me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm so comfortable with the messed up side of me that mm-hmm. I completely am at peace with knowing that each day I'm working through something that I am trying to break the habit of, whether it's been something that was taught from a being a, a child or something that I envisioned and thought that it had to be, which sounds a lot like maybe your zoo experience, mm-hmm. like, I am very, I've worked very hard to be self-aware of the improvement that I have to do just for myself daily. And so, um, yeah, that resonates deeply with me. Anything, honestly, that she says resonates deeply, but you know, these, this idea of perfect, what's perfect, especially in a world of veterinary medicine, right? Like totally what's perfect and, and how do we find that? And I think a lot of, it's funny that we're talking about this. So just jumping right into it, but I think a lot of what is important for us to keep a focus on is the fact that we are doing something each day that serves our passion. And I think that's some of uh, veterinary medicine's strong suit is like, there's a portion of it, whether it is in zoo medicine or whether, because I think you moved into emergency medicine at some point in your career, like whether it's any of those things, right? Like it, there is such a path for us to follow a passion. And, and I just, I wish that more veterinarians and veterinary staff for that matter, leaned into that side of it for the optimistic portion of it. But exactly. Exactly. So. And I still think that that optimistic kind of what we fell in love with as children, which is when I wanted to be a veterinarian, I, that can still show up. And I have, I've learned how to cultivate that with how I connect with clients because clients are either our biggest blessing or biggest curse, you know, kind of depending who comes through the door. And so I have um, a story about um, a man named Fred. If, okay. Would it be okay if I tell you my story? Yeah, it does. And I want, uh, Dr. Listener, uh, one thing I would love to touch base on after that story or before it or whatever is mm-hmm. it, at best for that. But I, I really do want to hear like the process, at least a brief process of what you mm-hmm. went through to shift your mindset from... I mean, you spent the majority of your college years and the majority of your childhood so hyper-focused on this version of yourself that you're anticipating that you're going to hit, you're going to be this person. Like, what did that look and feel like for the process of switching that I'm no longer going to fill this, these shoes of this human I thought I was going to be? Was that a hard, was it hard? Was oh, it easy? I just self-destructed. The... No, I self-destructed. So I was 26 at okay. the time, right? So that is young when it comes to pivoting your life. So I self-destructed for about six months because I didn't want to go into small animals at all. And so I, um, I hunted around for a new place to land, but I had to, I graduated without a job. You know, everyone graduated with a job and I turned down a zoo internship and didn't want to practice at 26. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't imagine how you were feeling in that moment where you've worked so hard. 
you have this internship that's being offered to you. This is the thing that you've been pushing for. And you are making this decision that you're about to pivot your life and do something completely different. I mean, that's admirable. A lot of people don't, a lot of people push forward because they're so afraid of what that is going to look like. And I, I work with a lot of early career veterinarians and interns now, and that's a big thing that I try to tell them. And actually, I told this story at the commencement address at, um, at Iowa State a couple of years ago because I wanted those, well, I guess, freshly minted veterinarians to understand it was okay to change your mind. And it was okay if something didn't sit well in your body to, to find something else to do because it's such an incredible degree um, and such, and it's that that there's so many other opportunities, but that there's still joy in small animal medicine. And, um, and cause that's the bulk of who we are. You know, when you say veterinarian, the bulk of us are small animal veterinarians and shout out to large animal vets and industry vets and, and nonprofit vets and spay neuter vets. And, but the bulk of your audience will be small animal veterinarians because that's just who we are um, from a majority standpoint. Well, I and think so, you said something right there, Dr. Lindsner, that's so powerful. If you're not happy where you are at, it's okay to change that. Like it is. you're, it's okay to change that. If you're in a place where you're not aligned and you're unhappy, there are places out there where you will find happiness. There are clinics that care and there are places that will provide you a comfortable space for growth. And you should never feel trapped because that feeling adds to what you're already struggling with. And so I'm just grateful that you made that call out. And I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to reinforce it because it is people are struggling right now and there Mm -hmm. is a beautiful world out there. And I think sometimes the smoke gets so caught up in front of our face that we can't see it, but I just, I, I like to reinforce that. So thank you very much for that. Oh, you're welcome. And we can come have a whole other, you know, discussion another time of how to do that because I, have a lot of people that apply for jobs that I post for, you know, that I create. And so there's, um, there's things that you need to do in order to switch from clinical medicine to something else. And we can talk about that another day, but, um, but, but never doubt that, that your brain can't learn more. It's so mm-hmm. difficult to get into vet school. It's so difficult to learn what we did. And we're more than capable of, you know, learning how to podcast, right? Oh. It's a, I, I talked about it a couple on a couple of episodes, it learning it, is yeah. like having the conversation is a little bit easier. Everything else between the lines is far more difficult than I even anticipated, but I'm really enjoying totally educating is. myself on it. So, okay. So if we're at right. this point where you've gone through this journey, you've yeah. looked back, you've decided, Hey, listen, I, I've, I'm going to make this big change in my life. I mean, you bottomed out for the, for the six months and then you mm-hmm. pivoted and went into this next version of your life. Help me better know what that looked like. And some of the lessons you learned in that portion, because it seems like it led to you being in a very happy spot right now. So I'm kind of interested in what that is. It did. And I I had the opportunity as so many of our new grads do to interview in a lot of places. So 20 years ago, there was still lots and lots and lots of jobs for veterinarians. And I found a hospital in North Carolina that um, I really connected with. It was in um, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Old Town Veterinary Hospital. And uh, the owner is Dr. Don Robertson. And he was probably in his 70s when, I hired, when he hired me 20 years ago. So he's no longer in practice. But he ran a tight ship, and he, which I needed because I was a scatterbrain and I needed and messy by nature. I, I've been very comfortable like living in clutter, but, I, but he taught me not to practice in clutter. And he taught me how to 
and it's the South, so things are slower. I live in New Jersey now, so I talk quickly, but I didn't back then, it was a much slower place. And, uh, and he had me see Fred, and uh, who was a kind of a, a client that would come in a lot. And Fred was probably in his mid forties and he lived with his, um, with his mother and Holly, his two-year-old black lab. And Fred would bring in Holly for like non-specific reasons. And it just started to like wear on everybody else, but I was new. So I got to take care of Fred and Holly. So she would come in because she didn't eat breakfast fast enough or she seemed sad or she stumbled once while walking. And so things that like as veterinarians, you're like, I don't even know if those are real things, right? So on physical exams, she was quiet, but she was normal. Nothing was painful. Um, ears looked good. Knees were fine. Um, and he and his mom had, didn't have a ton of, um, didn't have a ton of, of money. So I had to be careful with what I was doing from a diagnostic standpoint, but he really wanted to run some tests this time. So I was trying to figure out like, what do I run on this non-specifically, probably not even very sick dog who's owned by someone who just seems to be hypervigilant. I kind of feel bad, you know, asking, like spending his money. So I asked him, hey, Fred, what is your, what is your typical day for Holly look like? And I made a choice to ask that question, right? Which is part of the connection piece. And so he started walking me through his day with her, how they get up at 6 a.m. and what she has for breakfast and how they got ready to go to work together. And I was like, oh, wait a second. She goes to work with you? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, well what do you do for a living? Again, I chose to connect. And he said, well, I sell doors at the flea market. Oh. So I'm like, well, how do you do that? And he so he walked me through the process of how he acquires old doors from house remodels and he sands them down, repaints them in his shop. So keywords there, keywords there, right? Paint and old. So I said, hey Fred, where is Holly? Where is Holly when you're sanding the doors? And he's like, oh, she's right under my feet. She drives me crazy with that ball. She keeps rolling it over to me and I kick it back rolling over to me and kick it back. I'm like, huh. Fred, does Holly's ball ever get covered in the dust from the doors? He's like, yeah, all the time, all the time. So I used the little money that I had to test Holly's lead levels, which is the only time I've ever done lead tests in a domestic animal, right? And that's what it was. She had lead poisoning. It's the only case I'd ever seen. She soared through chelation therapy. And you know what? So did Fred. Fred also had lead toxicosis. So because I chose to connect with someone, really connect with them, it really made me realize the importance of listening and connecting to another human being. And that's honestly, like if you zoom out of like, why are people here? Like, what is the purpose of our lives? right? I believe it's to connect with other human beings. We just happen to have the honor of being able to do that through the bond they have with their pets. Okay. Yeah. There's several things here that I completely align with. One, I do believe that human connection is a huge deal. Uh, it's our top three to five. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, it's top one to three in the hierarchy of needs, but, yeah. but 
for me, uh, we talk a lot about veterinary medicine not being an animal business, that it is a human business because how we treat the clients and how we connect to them is going to be what serves our happiness. It We can't be animal focused. We can want to serve the animals. We can want to help them and make them better, but we have to be human focused because they are paying the bills. They are the ones head over heels for these dogs and they are their eyes and their voices for us. And how we choose to um, connect with our clients, I think speaks highly to how happy we are going to be in the long run. And this is a perfect example of that, right? Like not only let's think about the couple of things that happened in this, in this connection doc is like, we've got one, you made a friend and you made him feel seen and you made him seem valued and he will always trust you because of that. Two, you got to exercise your internal medicine brain right? and do something that you're really proud of because how many times do you see lead poisoning, right? Like that's an, and then three, which is our ultimate area of where our passion and our cup is filled. You got to save this dog. Mm -hmm. So all of that came from essentially your thought process of putting the human first in that moment. And it can be so easy for us to get like lost in our days and lost in all of the different tasks we have. And I completely get it. I've been there even thinking about it makes my shoulders get tight. I start to sweat a little bit. Like I, I, I completely recognize it, but making those connections can change the course of not only our appointment, but our day and essentially Mm -hmm. our career. And so I really am grateful that you brought that story up because I think that also speaks highly to how you choose to lead, which is interesting enough. Your first story kind of served your beginning career Mm -hmm. Second story kind of served your area of where your growth came from the middle section of your career. So now I'm curious, Mm -hmm. you've made, you've changed from zoo to practicing in clinic. Now you have changed from practicing in clinic to being chief veterinary officer. What, where you're sitting right now, what is something that either, I guess, what, what's one of your most proudest accomplishments or what is something that you feel has made a huge impact on your life with where you're at right now? Uh, it's understanding and being able to express empathy and to be able to teach others how to use empathy Mm. in a way that is safe for them. The bulk of what I do now, I do leadership development within our organization. So we have 65 hospitals and I have 65 medical directors. And the bulk of the work that I'm doing is supporting them in their leadership development, their leadership skills. And I'd like to, I thought it was going to be things around, I don't know, structure and strategy and scheduling. And it's not, it's feelings. Mm. Okay. So that, I think that is massive. And that is huge. It's a way that you're able to touch 60. I think part of even, even my belief when it comes to servant leadership, right? Like serve those who are serving others or who are leading others. And that's something that you're getting to do in this role. Right. But you're also Mm -hmm. teaching something that we really need a lot of. And I think ultimately it leads to us better understanding how our own emotions are showing up each day, Mm -hmm. um, which I think 
it's hard for us to look in the mirror. So when we start having lessons on a day-to-day basis of seeing other people and better understanding that interaction, it directly links back to how we're showing up. Um, Mm -hmm. So I really applaud that because empathy is needed. That's another conversation we could really dig into, right? Because what I do with, with my coaching and my speaking and all of, all of that consulting side of, of what I do, it comes from my optimistic nature and it's focused on seeing veterinary medicine in a different way, right? It's focused on not being lost in the smoke and, you know, seeing like the rainbows and the clouds and everything along those lines. So I'm just, I love hearing that more. I love hearing of the other people that are out doing that same work. So I'm super, I'm grateful for that. Mm, I am too. I never would have thought that this would have obviously, I mean, you saw my career trajectory, never would have thought this would have been my, my role. Um, the media stuff that I did was fun, but it was, uh, wasn't, it was pretty lonely. Honestly, it was pretty hollow. Um, I appreciate everything I learned there, but this is the richest work I've done. Mm. Um, when it comes to the emotional fulfillment and knowing that I'm help, truly helping people and helping the helpers, you know, when you can support leaders to show up in a place where they feel more grounded and more compassionate and more boundaried, um, they, they lead differently. I agree. So, and sometimes they just need to have somebody helping them, maybe, maybe shining the light on the path that is the, is the easiest more fulfilling way to walk. And I want to know this the easiest because sometimes this work is hard, but at least no, shining the light in the right, in the right direction and then hyping them up and empowering them along the way. I really, I really love that. Okay. So if we're wrapping, we're going to wrap this up, but I am going to, I am going to try and talk you back into another conversation around empathy. And, oh, I love empathy. And so like, we'll, totally, <laughs> we'll potentially come back to that. Cause I mean, that sounds like a great one, but to round this out, if you yeah. give advice, um, to a young veterinarian that's just starting out that is struggling with perfectionism, whether they have therapy. Yeah. Right. No, always therapy. No, 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 that's, that's like, that's it. Like mic drop, go to therapy, do your work, do your work, go to therapy. I love that. That's your, I have nothing. I have nothing else other than to say, go to therapy. Because you have not had the time. Chances are for you to get into veterinary school, you had to have at least anxiety, right? Definitely perfectionism. And who knows what other self-talk you had about how performance related to your self-worth, right? But likely you were taught that your performance and your self-worth went side side to side or side by side. Spoiler alert, they don't. You're worthy just because of who you are. But that's not why you got into vet school. You got in because you could perform. Then you get out and you're like, well, I got an A in internal medicine. I got an A in surgery. I got an A in dermatology. Why are these cases crushing me so much? Why is medicine not like what we learned? Uh, and why is it not what like happened in the textbook? And you did not have the time to do your therapy in vet school. Maybe you had a therapist in school, but I've talked to them. I've talked to the social workers in the veterinary schools and they don't have enough time to teach all of you what you need to do in order to be healthy. So if you're like, you know, part of the, the list of things you do when you move on after you graduate to you get your disability insurance, you set up your 401k, you find a yoga studio, you find a church, whatever, find a therapist. Okay. And if you don't like the first one you met, find another one. Okay. So this is something that I'm always trying to break the, the negative thought around therapy. Everybody needs a therapist because a therapist. not even mentioning the things that you just named off. If you uh-huh. have the fact that in general, humans have around 60,000 thoughts a day and mm. 80% of them are negative. 
And the majority of that are the the majority of those are repetitive, Mm -hmm. right? Like if you've got numbers like that and you're consistently beating yourself up and saying all these negative things, I, I can see how we get into this place where therapy is needed. Like I'm such a huge fan of it. And I'm so grateful you gave that call out. And I almost want to bring, bring you back and switch the conversation now from empathy to um, (laughs) what it, what it looked like talking about what you just talked about. I, I believe a lot of young veterinarians struggle with that. And I believe that is a very needed conversation for people to just feel like they can say, wow, that was me too. Wow. I'm glad I wasn't alone. Um, So that's the conversation I'm going to try and encourage. Whichever you like, I will come back to the more veterinarians we have in therapy, practicing empathy, especially towards themselves or compassion towards themselves, the uh, healthier our profession will be. I love that. Okay. What a perfect note to end on doctor. I am so grateful you were here today to all of our listeners. I would, we would love for you to tell us what you think, please go over to the veterinary optimist, give it a like, a follow, share this episode. All of this really matters. And we are just so grateful um, that you chose to spend your time with us today. Bye everybody.